Well, good morning. I, uh, I'm privileged to, it's been a while, uh, to preach again, and I appreciate John and Carl offering. And uh, this morning, as I uh, lead, I want to open by just asking you, have you ever been, you know this term, a plus one? You know, of going to, let's say, a party of some kind, and you really weren't invited, but you're going with someone who was invited. And, uh, or uh, going to a wedding. Now, that can be really special. It can be a really nice wedding, great food, same way with the party. You get invited, like a birthday party or something, and you're a plus one. You're really not related to anybody there, really, or even weren't invited, except you're the plus one. And, uh, and so, uh, and you get to enjoy the food. Did I already say that? But anyway, and, uh, and then, or you get to go to, uh, someone's house for like Thanksgiving or Christmas coming up. You're really not related to the family or whatever, but you're a plus one. And it's a really nice, uh, celebration that you get and nice home you get to enjoy and good food. And, uh, you know, I was thinking this week of this and Meghan Markle, who was like, this is the ultimate plus one, right? And uh, I, she is just a middle class average Joe, just like, well, not just like me because she's female, but but somebody like uh, one of you and, and born in Los Angeles, you know, just kind of grew up there, whatever, became an actress or whatever. And she meets at a party. Prince Harry, one of the um, heirs to the throne of of uh, um, of England, and she marries him, and she becomes the Duchess of Sussex, and she gets to do all this incredible stuff. Now think of that. She wasn't really related. She wouldn't ever been invited into these castles and get to travel all over the world and ride on the yacht and etc. Except She's the ultimate plus one. Because of her relationship now with Harry, she gets to enjoy all of these incredible benefits. Um, in the passage that Darren read just a minute ago, there's probably something that you haven't seen before, and that's the message for this morning, of what I would call the ultimate plus one. And you're the plus one. And so I want to explain that a little bit this morning. The topic of today's message is New Testament wine. Hope that makes you uncomfortable. No, just kidding. And uh, I want to address each one of these uh, uh, words individually. The first thing with this is uh, the the Hebrew um, Hebrew Greek word that is being used here is kanos, which is a different um, uh, for, as different from or superseding the old. There's two words in Greek for new. This isn't the one that's kind of fresh or could be refreshed or something, but this is actually one that says this is something completely different. Uh, than what was before. The second word is testament. Um, we're all familiar, you know, you've got a Bible and it says you open it up uh, to the uh, to the books of the Bible or whatever your index page is and whatever, and they give you Old Testament and New Testament. 
that's actually just the, the word for covenant. And uh, uh, the, the word testament is, all, is just comes from the Latin testamentum, which is uh, the Latin for covenant. And so here we have a word that's just covenant. It's a formal, solemn, binding agreement uh, that's a compact between two people. And in this case, with the Bible, it's God's compact with his people. And we have, there's an old one and a new one. And, whoa. And, uh, and today, one of the things that I wanted to bring up in this is that you understand that there's a superseding, that there's a newness to this New Testament that we're going to talk about this morning that supersedes the old. In the New Testament, or the New Covenant, is actually found in the Old Testament. There were at least five covenants given. A lot of people will give more than this. Uh, There's also one that's called the Noahic Covenant before this. But since Abraham, all of God's covenants have been with the nation of Israel. There was the Abrahamic covenant that established, that was Genesis 12 and 15 and 17, in which God selected a man from what is now modern day Iraq, from the area of Babylon, and brought him out and brought him to a particular land. And there he said, I'm choosing your descendants to be my chosen people. And then he, he expanded upon that, in Deuteron- and we have it recorded in Deuteronomy that Moses later wrote, that said, hey, listen, God not only made a covenant with his people, but he also brought them out and is giving them a land. And so there's a land promise there as well. It was made to Abraham, but it was expanded upon in, uh, by Moses. There's the Mosaic Covenant that is explained by a series of blessings and cursings. If you people do this, then I'll bless you. If you don't do this, then you're going to bring judgment upon yourself. And then there was the Davidic covenant that God made with King David that says, listen, there's always, there is coming a man who is going to sit on your throne, one of your descendants, and he will have an eternal kingdom. And then finally, there's one place in the Old Testament where this whole thing of a new covenant or a new testament is made, and that is in Jeremiah chapter 31. I've been teaching, or me and Carl and Nate and Bill and John and others, I guess that's it, but I have been teaching for a while through uh, the book of uh, Jeremiah. And in Jeremiah chapter 31, we read these words. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. It's the only use of the new covenant and the old covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. 
my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. If you go through the prophets of the Old Testament, what occupy almost, well, over a third of the Old Testament, one of the things you'll see over and over again and we've been doing this as we've studied some in the Sunday school classes and some in the Old Testament that we've gone through, is you start to see it that God has promised His people these to fulfill these covenants in a time when it will never end. Now, in the meantime, God's people had broken His covenant with them the covenant that he made with Moses, the Mosaic covenant, and they came upon cursings and they lost their privilege and they were scattered among the peoples of the earth and will remain so until what is promised, a new day. And in that new day, God will establish in the land that he has promised with the people he has promised an eternal kingdom where as we understand from the New Testament and other places, that there'll be someone that will come along who will be a perfect king who will reign. And everyone, as it says here, will know the Lord. Not just in a salvific sense. I think this is more along their hearts are changed. No more will I be encumbered by sin. No more will there be things that weigh me down. I will have live in a perfect land with a perfect king. It's like the ultimate experience in this kingdom that will come. Now, that would be a really, really special place to be. And one of the things that we learn in the, about the new covenant in the New Testament is this. All of these covenants that I've already mentioned, all but one, were unconditional and eternal. And that one would be superseded by the others. The Mosaic Covenant was conditional and temporal. Jesus, the mediator of the New Covenant, a better covenant, makes the Mosaic Covenant obsolete. This is the message of the book of Hebrews in chapters 8 and 9. In chapter 8, he says that uh, the writer quote of Hebrews quotes Jeremiah 31 through 34, making this point, that the work of Jesus Christ, as he continues in, in chapter 8, explains the inadequacy of the animal sacrifices and the ultimate sufficiency of the blood of Christ. And so the new covenant replaces the old covenant. The old covenant passes away. The new covenant comes. That's great news, especially if you're one of the chosen people, especially if you're one of Abraham's descendants. I'm not. What I'd like to be in this eternal kingdom that I understand that will come 
I want to be the plus one. That's what I want to be. And then we have this incredible thing that Darren read earlier today that says, and then this, Luke twenty two twenty says, and he, Jesus, took the cup after supper, the Passover meal that they were celebrating, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shared for you. This cup was the New Testament wine. This cup was the cup of blessing. This cup initiated the new covenant. Hang on. One word in New Testament wine that I didn't get to yet is, uh, is wine. Wine in the Bible, and this is not meant to be a theology of wine or alcohol in the Bible. So first of all, I'll just say that. So I'm going to go through this fairly quick. It's not meant to be a discourse or theology of this. But wine is a part of the Bible. It's used, the, the word is used, uh, I believe, 200, over 230 times in the Bible. And it's used in both a positive and negative connotation. It's, it is explained that it's both used and abused. In its use, it's part of the sacrifices to God, and it's kept in the temple. It's supplied by God to make a man's heart glad. It's a sign of God's blessing and prosperity to his people. But its abuse is also indicated there. And these are things that we certainly have in a, um, in a uh, society that highly values alcohol. We understand this, that it can lead to intoxication and drunk, drunkenness that you get from consuming too much of it. From that, results can result lewdness and immorality. As a matter of fact, the very first um, instance or use of wine in the in uh, the Old Testament scriptures in Genesis chapter nine, where after the incredible thing with Noah and building the ark and being on the ark for a year and so on, he comes off the ark and he offers a sacrifice to God and he and he does what any good American would do next, and that's get drunk, and so uh, and that is. You know, and, and there was lewd uh, behavior on his behalf. Oh, well, anyway, go on. And it results in antisocial behavior. Uh, I saw this T-shirt. You may not be able to read this, so I'll read it for you. Dear Wine, we had a deal. You were to make me funnier, sexier, smarter, and a better dancer. I saw the video. We need to talk. Anyway, so... So, because of this, we understand. I say that in a joking manner, but we all understand what a serious problem this can be. And so, some have chosen to, to try and redefine what wine is. Uh, we want to make wine what it is not. What it is, is wine is fermented grape juice. There is no uh, historical, exegetical, grammatical, language transition of any kind 
uh, that would point us to anything different than the two words that are used in the Hebrew Bible and the Greek Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament, that would point us to anything other than this conclusion. As a matter of fact, we see the parallels, because I just gave you one, which is in the Old Testament. Uh, the Hebrew word for wine is always yayin, and, and it, you know, it, the very first time it's mentioned is Noah drank of the wine and was drunk. And in the New Testament, the Greek word is oinos, always, for wine, and it's do not be, here's Ephesians 5.18, do not be drunk with wine. Obviously, it's a fermented product if you can get drunk off of it. So that that is what wine certainly is. It's fermented grape juice. Now, you might say in the in this particular ver or passage in Luke, uh, it's mentioned as the fruit of the vine, not wine. But let me give you a couple of things that, that point, and this has pretty much been the standard line throughout the church uh, history through theologians that the fruit of the vine is wine. And here's the reasons why. Uh, the Passover meal was celebrated with wine. We understand that traditionally, historically, and this was the Passover meal. Never was anything else substituted for that. Um, as a matter of fact, it I believe that one of the reasons why it was the fruit of the vine that Jesus said is to make sure it was grape uh, wine and not wine made out of other things, uh, which it could have been wine was still made out of other things. I remember friends of my parents, um, uh, and we didn't realize this, but they used to make wine in their basement. And so one time we found out as kids, and they were making elderberry wine. No, making it. So uh, anyway, and one of these others, I think it's in uh, Song of Solomon. Well, I know it's in Song of Solomon chapter 8, where it talks about wine being made from pomegranates. And uh, uh, so anyway, the fruit of the vine and the cup were also common figures of speech for wine. In Paul's correction of the church at Corinth, for the way they were mishandling the Lord's Supper, that's in uh, chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, some were coming in and eating up all the bread before others had any. Could you imagine that? And so that some people were just kind of helping themselves. They kind of got the Lord's Supper. And so he was correcting and saying, hey, listen, this isn't the time for you to eat. Eat at home. And then when you come to celebrate together, um, uh, you know, you wait on each other and you make sure everyone has some. And some were reprimanded because they were drinking the wine that was being used for the Lord's Supper to intoxication. Also, the Passover was in the spring. The grape harvest was in autumn. And one of the simple things about grapes, as soon as the grapes are crushed and the juice is released, it instantly begins a fermentation process. As a matter of fact, if you just did that, non-refrigerated, Okay, so I'll qualify that. Non-heat processed, I would qualify that. But if you just squeeze the grapes and leave them, they immediately, the next day, you can measure the amount of alcohol already in them. Very tiny, but it's already, the fermentation process automatically begins. And you understand that. If you buy grapes and you don't refrigerate them and you stick them at home, they begin to spoil pretty quick. So you need to keep them in your refrigerator and you already know that. But anyway, throughout church history, the Lord's Supper was almost exclusively celebrated with wine up until 
Does anybody have any idea who this guy is? His name is Thomas Barnwell Welch. He was a, uh, a prohibitionist. He was a Wesleyan Methodist minister. He was a circuit rider. And, um, um, and he saw the problems in the area that he was from of what alcohol had done. So he tried to eliminate it and as a prohibitionist effort and to change society in that regard. And particularly then he had an objection to it being in the church, even if it was for a sacramental purpose. And so in 1869, he invented a pasteurization method that would allow grape juice to still be nice, tastes like grape juice, very good, but would stop it from spoiling and would stop the fermentation process. And, um, and he founded what ultimately became the Welch's Grape Juice Company, which we have some right down here, I believe. And so, uh, um, it, interestingly enough, he never profited a penny off of that. It was his heirs that did. He did it to just provide the church an alternative to what they were using um, in the church for uh, the Lord's Supper. As a matter of fact, it was originally called not Welch's grape juice. It was initially called, he first named it Welch's unfermented wine. And uh, it was quickly embraced by conservative evangelical Protestants and still in America and still is to this day. And uh, so that's, that's what we do. I'm not saying it's a bad idea. I know we use it here. I'm not saying it's a bad idea. It's, uh, it, it's certainly, you know, you don't want to be a legalist either way. So I'll move on. This is not to be a theology. But the wine came, there were four cups of the Passover. Some people will note in the passage that Darren read today, it was like he took the cup and then he told them, I won't drink of this again till I enter the kingdom. And and each of y'all take some of it. And then he breaks the bread. Oh, wait a second, that's not the order. Well, then they have another cup uh, that... He takes after the bread is broken and he pronounces that. Then they take another cup. Well, what is this? And that's because it's a quick understanding of the Passover. Now, I know we've done a Passover Seder here before. And during that, we did the four cups of the Passover. And these are based upon uh, the passage, the four verbs out of the passage of Exodus 6, 6 through 7, in which uh, God told his people, I will take you out when the Passover was initiated. And this is what is commonly called the cup of sanctification. I believe that's what the first cup is here, that I'm taking you out. I will save you. And that's the cup of deliverance. Some people call that the cup of plagues because that's how the particular uh, nation when the Passover was instituted was uh, saved. I will redeem you. And that's the cup of blessing. And I believe that's what, that's what, after the cup of deliverance, the Passover meal was shared. And that's what we read about in this passage in Luke chapter 22. And then the cup that came right after the meal was the cup of blessing. 
Or some people call it the cup of redemption because it comes out of this, I will redeem you. I will establish something with you that you didn't have before, that you needed. And then finally, I will take you and, uh, and make you a nation and give you your place. And they are still waiting for that cup to be fulfilled. And that with that is the cup of praise or the cup of Hallel, as some people call it. Hallel is just the Hebrew word for, for song or singing in the verb form. And as we also know from the First Corinthians passage, they, after our Matthew passage, in which the parallel passage, in which they then sang a hymn and went out. And that's the reason why you would have done that. It's recognizing that the day that they will sing when they have their nation restored and they have their nation made whole and they have a king again and they have the land again and they understand that there's coming a time. Now, there's one other thing that's kind of interesting. It's a reference, might be a reference to, well, it is a Jewish tradition, but there's an interesting parallel that some people will make with this. When a man and woman wanted to marry, this was during Jesus' time, uh, and you were Hebrews, <laughs> sons of Abraham. He and his father, so if I wanted to marry a woman, uh, I wanted to marry Rhonda, and I did. And uh, both, I married her and wanted to. And uh, I, then he and his father went to the woman's father to negotiate the bride price. If that was successful, then the husband-to-be would offer the bride-to-be a glass of wine. And if she took it and drank from it, she was effectively saying yes to the marriage proposal. She would then hand the glass back to her husband-to-be, and he would drink from it, and that would seal the contract for them to be married. So some people will ask, did Jesus ask his disciples, would they have seen this, to drink from, or to drink wine from the cup and accept his marriage proposal as representatives of the church that would come? Did Jesus not seal the contract at that time? Did Jesus not seal the contract at that time when he said, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine? until the kingdom of God comes. You can see how it could be interpreted that Jesus didn't take the cup because he's telling them, I will not take the cup until the kingdom of God comes. Interesting. Thus, the offer of the bride of Christ remains open till he establishes the kingdom at his second coming and takes the cup with them. To seal the contract, to seal the deal. New Testament wine that we'll partake of this morning, Welch's unfermented wine, remembers the blood of Jesus. And we all know that, and we're all thankful for that. And we know, as John has been preaching through, oops, uh, through Romans, that in Romans 8, I mean, in Romans 5, verse 8 and 9 says, But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. His body was broken for us. 
And now, since we have been justified by His blood, so we understand something, that that blood, and this is often the way we celebrate the Lord's Supper, that we understand that our justification came through His blood. But the thing I wanted you to see this morning is that the New Testament wine is for all who believe in Jesus for eternal life. That's what this says. But Jesus makes it something particular. I know it's rote. I know we've heard it a hundred times before. But it's easy to miss. That it's to specifically what we will do this morning as a church together. With the blood, with that which is representative. With the blood of Christ. Of the blood of Christ. Is to celebrate believers' entrance into the kingdom of God. I don't know if you've ever thought about that before. It is an amazing thing. I, when we were going through, uh, when I was teaching in Jeremiah 31, I said this is the most important chapter in the Old Testament. Why? Because it's the only one that really specifically applies to me. That new covenant that God made with his people, Israel, is going to one day be fulfilled. And there will be an eternal kingdom that will have all these blessings. And through the blood of Christ, who provided salvation for me, As Romans says in other places, I will participate. I'll be one. I'll have entrance. I am the plus one for that eternal kingdom. Meghan Markle has nothing upon what I have been guaranteed by the blood of Jesus. And it adds a new twist or a new flavor or a new consideration to what we will celebrate this morning. And so now let's take a few minutes and celebrate together today the new covenant that Christ has made us participants, partakers of, participants in, and long for that eternal kingdom to come, that you will be the plus one. Let's, let's, uh, I'd ask the men who are going to serve to come forward. Lord, I, uh, this morning as we begin this time together, we remember the body that was broken for us, the death of the perfect man, who took away the sins of the world. And we understand that that blood provided, paid the price for the sins of all men. But we also understand that in this cup we will enjoy. We become partakers of the new covenant. Promise and fulfilled to your people Israel. Offered to people like me who believe in Jesus. I know that we will be eternally grateful 
when we are in that kingdom which will come, when the worries of this world will be all passed away. And we look forward to that day. O Lord, may your kingdom come quickly. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Amen. During the Passover meal, I believe, Jesus took the unleavened bread that was part of it and broke it and gave it to his disciples. And he said, I won't, he had already told them he won't eat of the Passover meal again with them until he, he does it in the kingdom. But he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take and eat. Gentlemen. After the Passover meal was done, Jesus took the third cup, the cup of redemption. And he said, this cup is, this cup, the fruit of the vine, is my blood of the new covenant. Take, drink, remember. Remember.